I mean, you guys have a good, have, have a seat. Good evening, seven o'clock. You guys doing well? Look good. Uh, my name is Greg Brazil. I'm the North Campus pastor, serve as one of the elders uh, here. Um, last week, Tyler mentioned um, the uh, Invite One campaign that is starting now. And so there's kind of three phases to this. We're asking you, one, we're asking you to pray for non-Christians, those that you know that you're in classes with and you uh, live around or you work with. You would pray that God would begin to open their eyes and work, uh, just work in their hearts. Um, phase two is that you would invite them in, into your home and share your story and share a meal and um, open your life up and hear kind of what um, their, their story and their life and share that with them. And third phase uh, is that you would actually invite them to Easter service in April. And so the, the plan behind this, the hope behind this is that we love our city. We're doing this campaign not to just do more campaigns or print nice flyers or whatever, the, though they're nice. We're, we're doing this because we love Austin. We love our city. And we want to see um, the city prosper. We want to see the city flourish. We want to see reconciliation and justice and freedom and peace reign in our city. And the way that happens is with the gospel. The gospel, once it's believed and trusted, it has a way of transforming people and renewing cities and creating movements. And Jesus is magnified through this. And so the way that we uh, seek the flourishing and the blessing of our city is by loving it with the gospel. And so this campaign is a way of us actually loving our city and saying, we want what's best for you. We want you to know Jesus and treasure him. And so this, this campaign is a way of saying, let's love our city with the truth of who Jesus is and, his, and this gospel. So I want to invite you tonight to go all in with this. Uh, don't just chunk this flyer you're going to get once you leave here. Don't just throw it away on the way home. Just actually invest some time in this and think deeply about this. Uh, so go all in and actually pray and consider and do the hard work um, of talking to non-Christians and asking God that he would save and bless and move in this city. Can we do that? All right, good. We're not done tonight. So if you thought that was the sermon, that's not the sermon. So, but there is a sermon tonight. Um, so we're in the book of, uh, of 1 Peter and we are walking through uh, this letter that Peter wrote to suffering Christians who were, they're suffering because of their faith in Jesus. And so calling Jesus Lord and King meant not calling Caesar, the emperor, Lord and King, and that cost them. It cost them certain freedoms, cost them uh, certain comforts, it cost some their own lives, we know historically. And so uh, Peter writes to them and he reminds them to stand firm. They have this eternal, unfading hope and they are to stand firm in the midst of their exile because their future is certain. God, uh, Jesus, he suffered and died, but God raised him from the dead. And because of that, they and we now have this eternal, unfading hope that no one can take from us. It's, it's kept in heaven for us. And so Peter's saying, wait and have hope in this and trust in this and stand firm now. And so we come uh, tonight to just one verse, verse 13. And it's unique because it's the first time that Peter tells us to actually do something. And so this is the first time Peter will actually tell them and, and us at the same time to actually take action and do something. He gives them a command for the first time and says, I want you to now do this and apply this and put your faith into practice. So for 12 verses, he's given them nothing but promises and reminders and shown them the sovereign work of God for us in giving us new birth and electing us and choosing us and blessing us and refining our faith, doing all these things. He just celebrated all that God has done and he's not told us anything to think or feel or do yet until now. 
now he will um, actually command us to do something and uh, put forth some effort and actually put these things um, into practice. And so here's what, what Peter says, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we've called the series um, in First Peter, we've called the series Hope in Exile, and this is why. Peter's saying, take all of your hope, all the hoping that you have in your life, and set that fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns. So the gospel is, is not just that Jesus died for us and that Jesus rose again for us. It's that he died and rose, and one day he is coming back. The king is coming back to set all things right, to right all wrongs, to heal and restore and cleanse. And Peter says, set all of your hope fully on the grace that's being brought to you when this king returns. And so he commands them to now sober up and to think in the right ways and to get their minds ready for action so that they can hope in their certain future that when Christ returns, he renews all things and restores all things. And this is the living hope that we have. Now, I love that Peter starts out with the word therefore. Now, you may be tempted if you're reading this by yourself to just skip that word. But this is the Austin Stone. We don't skip words in the Bible. All right, we'll spend entire weeks and a whole sermon series just on a few, ver on a few words. So we don't skip these. We think God actually put those words there for our good. So whenever you see the word therefore, don't skip that word. Instead, you should ask the question, what's that therefore? See what I did there? So you, you hear the word therefore and you ask the question, what's the author putting that therefore? It's this very important, you cannot miss this. What Peter's doing is he's connecting all that he has just said with what he's about to say. So it's a hinge that Peter kind of uses here. So in light of all that I've just said, Peter says, in light of all the promises, all the blessings, all that God has done for you, therefore now here's what you should do. You can't miss this because that's how the gospel actually works. The way that God saves us, that's the pattern that God, the equation as it were, that God always uses for us. It's grace and then there's law. It's salvation and then comes the obedience on our part. It's God accepts us and then he gives us requirements and things to actually do for him. But God is the one who always moves first. God saves us first. God brings us in. God breaks down all the barriers. God does all this work. He chooses us. He calls us to himself. He sends his son to die for us. He does all of that first. Then comes the obedience and the requirements and the laws and the commands for us to actually obey. And you can't miss this. Whenever you come to Christianity, you don't, you don't get ethics first. Our faith is not a, some kind of new moral code of conduct. It's not ethics first and rules first and new laws and new kind of tips for your life first. If you think that, it will crush you. If you come to Christianity and you come and try to live this out just in your own power, your own strength, without grace first, it will absolutely crush you because the bar is just too high. You, you can't do this. Instead, God gives us grace first. God accepts us first. The verdict on our life is that we are forgiven and righteous and approved by God. God utterly brings us in. Then we start to actually do things. You get a savior first. Then you get commands and requirements. 
You get grace first. You get God loving us first and coming to us first, but we're just not wired to think this way, are we? I mean, we think if, if we're good people, if I'm good, then God will love me and accept me. Most of us think that. We're just wired to think if I'm a good person, if I you know, I'm a good citizen, if I pay taxes, if I attend church, if I give some money to, you know, in the offering, if I use my blinker, if I, you know, cut no one off in traffic, if I obey all the laws and keep, you know, avoid the big sins, then on the basis of that, God will love me and accept me and take me to heaven when I die and all will be good with him. That's how most of us deep down, we're just wired to think that if we get things relatively right, then God will bless us and love us and accept us. And the gospel comes in and shatters that idea. I mean, it absolutely subverts the entire system. The world kind of works on a performance verdict system. You perform first, then you're given a verdict. You know, so in sports, you practice and you sweat and you work out and you train and you play the game and you win. Then the verdict is you have a trophy, you have, you know, a scholarship, you get the prize, you perform first, then comes the verdict. In education, you have to actually show up and use a pencil and take notes and, or borrow someone else's notes and pass the grade. Then the verdict is, um, I pass, I get the grade, I you know, graduate, you get the verdict then, but you must perform first. In all of life, it's perform, then verdict. Then the gospel comes in and just reverses the whole system. You get a verdict first. God declares you righteous. God declares you as righteous as Jesus was righteous. God utterly accepts you and determines and declares that you are now justified and righteous and, and clean in his sight. Then comes the performing and doing good and requirements and obedience. You can't reverse this. You'll miss the entire gospel. Because unless you know what God has done for you, you can't and you won't do anything for him. Unless you see that God has loved you first and accepted you first in Jesus on the basis of his grace, not your effort, not your goodness, not your morality, it's on the basis of grace, you won't actually obey him. But when, but when you see him, when you see the beauty of the gospel and God loving you first and coming to you first in Jesus and dying for you and laying his life down and giving everything at utter cost to himself, then you can obey. Then you'll want to obey. So grace rightly understood always produces effort on our part. You get that gospel grace down into your system, deep down in your system, and you actually believe this, understand this, it naturally produces effort in us. And so if you think right now that your, your obedience doesn't matter, your repentance, your growth in godliness doesn't matter, you've not understood the gospel. You've missed the therefore in the entire Bible. It's he's done all these things, therefore now, extend and exert some effort not to gain favor you already have his favor it's just you understanding this and celebrating this and so Peter celebrates the sovereign gracious work of God on our behalf first then he commands us to obey and and the command here is to set your hope fully on the grace that's coming to you when Jesus returns so really it's a heart it's a heart action so it's, it's not so much go and actually do this. In some ways, Peter's saying to, to feel this. Hope is, hope is an inner posture toward Jesus and what he's gonna do for us when he comes. And so Peter is, is commanding our heart. 
Set your hope fully. Think on this. Feel this. And have this posture um, toward Jesus. It's an interaction step. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you command your heart to hope in something? How do you make your heart set its hope fully on something? Let's back up and just ask the other question of what happens when we just hope in general. When you hope for you know, a promotion or a job or to get into some school or you know, some response from something, whenever you hope in something, what are you doing? You're thinking about it. You're just rehearsing that outcome and that endeavor, that experience. You're, just, you're thinking about this and you're filling your mind up with just every scenario and all the angles and all the outcomes. You're just always, it just kind of grabs your imagination, doesn't it? It captures your mind and your thoughts and it just kind of fills your, your thinking and that's how you hope in something. That's what Peter's saying here. When, when Peter says to set your hope fully, he's not saying that you need to somehow flex your, your hope muscles. He's not saying to turn up the heat on your, on your hoping. Instead, he appeals to their thinking. It starts in your mind. It starts in your thoughts. And so the way to hope in the right way and in the right things is to think in the right way. It always begins with your thinking. So Peter tells them two things that they need to do in order to set their hope fully on the grace that's coming to them um, when, when Jesus returns. Now, I love Peter because Peter's so practical. Peter will say, all right, here's what you do. Now, here's how you do it. Here are two or three things. Paul's not like that. If you read like Ephesians or you know, Colossians, Paul is not practical really at all. Paul's like, husbands, love your wives. How, Paul? Figure it out. Just do something. Love them, look at Jesus. And, and so Peter actually gives us some things to do. So two things, if you're taking notes, two things Peter says to do. First thing he says to do is to prepare your minds for action. So look what he says in verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See how that connects? You, you prepare your mind for action so you can set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And so what Peter's saying here is to get your mind ready for this, to take action in your mind and in your thoughts and in your thinking. Now, if you read the Greek, what Peter, some of you are like, yeah, I've got the Greek right on me. I'll pull it out right now. If you, if you read the Greek, um, what Peter literally says here is gird the loins of your mind. Gird the loins of your mind. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Peter's day, um, men would wear these long like robes which was great for walking in, but if an enemy attacks you and you had to run or fight, you're doomed. So you can't fight in a long flowing robe very well. So what they would do, they would tuck in the robes in their belt. They kind of bring in all these loose ends and all the garb and they would tuck it in and they would gird up those, the, the loins as it were and put it, now they can run, now they can duck, they can jew, they can go left and you know, fake left and go right, they can Heisman, like they could actually move now. And so Peter's saying they're ready to fight. So get your mind like this. Get your mind prepared for action. Take all of those, all those loose ends, you know, all those ideas and all those emotions and those feelings and those motives and fantasies and all of your thoughts and bring all those loose ends and submit all of your thinking to God and get your mind ready for action is what Peter, uh, Peter is saying here. This is an active thing for us to do, by the way. This is not passive. You don't just coast into having your mind ready for action. 
You don't wake up automatically with your mind alert and ready to go and just focused on the gospel and Jesus. It doesn't happen automatically for us. And so you, you have to take action with this. This is a fight because the assaults are coming. The assaults on your mind, the assaults on your joy and the way that you view God, the way you view money and sexuality and success and power, all those things, assaults are coming. So Peter says, get your mind ready for action. Don't be lulled to sleep in this. Let God shape how you think in every way. Bring all of your fantasies, all your thoughts, all your dreams, all your aspirations, all your hopes. Bring all those loose ends and let God decide how you think about this life. Um, here's how, speaking of Paul, here's how Paul uh, would say this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world. And we could just say, based on what Peter says, don't, don't have the same hope the world has. Don't set your hope on things the world sets its hope on. Instead, uh, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what he's saying is hit the refresh button very often on your thinking and your, your thoughts and your, your inner life. You need this renewal happening all throughout your day, all throughout your life, and you're consistently, constantly even, just refreshing how you think, repenting in your thoughts. You're believing lies, you're believing half-truths, you're taking the wrong ideas about God or the world or life or whatever it is, and, and, and Peter's saying, get your mind ready because assaults are coming on your mind. Not just intellectual assaults, but, but assaults on your joy and your affections for Jesus and who he is. It's coming to you. And so prepare your mind for action. Otherwise, you'll just be lulled to sleep in your thinking. And you'll just let your guard down and you will slowly drift away from hoping in Jesus. See, few Christians just run from Jesus. I mean, a few of us just wake up and say, I'm out, and just head to the kind of the other side and just abandon Jesus. Most of us just kind of slowly drift away. We were at the beach um, some years ago, and the current was really strong, so we're in the water trying to avoid, you know, small sharks and jellyfish and debris. It was a terrible beach. I don't know why we were there for vacation. So it was like in Alabama, so it was awful beaches. If you're from there, no offense, but the beaches are terrible, so get better beaches. So do something about that. But we're at the beach, and about an hour and a half in, we're just playing in the water, you know, on boogie boards or whatever. And I look up and someone had moved our stuff. Like someone picked up our bags and umbrella and all of our gear and just moved it down the beach. I'm like, who would take our stuff and just move it down the, you know, down the beach? And also I noticed that the large building behind our stuff had also moved down the beach. And I realized what is happening right now? And it dawns on me, the first time in my life this has happened, it dawns on me the current was just slowly taking me down the beach. Stuff wasn't moving, I was moving, and I had no idea. I mean, the current is so strong, and so you, you, know, you dive in the water, and you fall, and you get up, and you slowly drift you down the beach. That's how many of us, in fact, relate to Jesus. We just slowly drift away from him. We let our guard down. We entertain some thoughts. We kind of toy with some lies. We tow the line and our guard is down in our thinking, and all of a sudden we begin to slowly drift away from him, and our hope in the gospel begins to fade. And Peter's saying, get your minds ready. Don't be lulled to sleep. Bring all of those thoughts, bring all of those loose ends, bring all those ideas, and submit everything to the authority and reign and rule of God in your life. 
because it's just, it's just too easy for us to compartmentalize our lives. It's so easy for us just to mark off certain areas of our life and say, God, you can have these other areas. This area is mine. It's like a movie theater. You go into Alamo Draft House, and there are 10 films playing at once. I mean, there's Lego Batman. There's, you know, John Wick 2. There's Logan. There's Fences. There's La La Land or Moonlight. We're not sure these days, so whichever one that, whichever one that was. Some of you watch that. So we're not sure what it is. There's Moonlight. There's all these movies. And if you're watching Batman, though, you don't hear what's happening in Fences or John Wick 2. There's all these structures in the building to keep you from hearing or seeing what's happening the other movie over. And plus, every movie has its kind of its own director, its own storyline, its own plot, its own screenplay. All these things are different, and there's no connection. There's all these things playing at once with absolutely no spillover, no connection, nothing that threads them all together. And most of us try and live our lives just like that. And so we have these certain rooms that we say, God, here's my life with God in this room. Here's, you know, my school, my career, my kind of, my, you know, my trajectory in this room, my career path. Here's my money in this place. Here's my hobbies in this place. And we're okay with God governing over how we think in some areas, but not all of the areas. And so we're okay with all that God says about our relationships and, and dating and marriage and kids. We're okay with all that God says about that, but this career this career path I'm on, this one's mine. I decide how I think about this area. Not God, it's off limits to God. I determine what happens and how I speak and how I think and what I do. This one's mine. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's you know, not career. Maybe it's just your hobbies. That you say, God, all that you say about money and my career, all that, I'm fine with that, but this endeavor, this is mine. The way I think about this, I decide what happens here, how I think about this, my time here, my money here, whatever it is, this is my, my spot, not yours. Most of us try to live our lives by giving God some kind of, you know, some areas of our life, but not all these things, and we don't let God govern how we think in all of these areas, and this is why we're blinded sometimes to the hope that we have in the gospel, is that our hope becomes something else. Our joy is defined by something else. Our worth is defined by something else. And we are blind to our hope in this, in this gospel. And so Peter's saying to get, to get your mind ready for action. Bring all those loose ends, all those thoughts, all those endeavors, all those dreams and aspirations for your life. And let God decide how you think about those things. And so I just wonder, what, what, where has your mind just kind of grown lazy what, are you, what area do you so easily let your guard down with? What thoughts or dreams or fears are you entertaining and kind of harboring that's taking your hope off of Jesus and what he's, what he's done for you and what he will do for you? What areas are just off limits to God? Maybe it's, maybe it's you know, there's someone you've refused to forgive right now. That to think about this person, all you think about is the hurt that they have caused you. And so you see them, you interact with them, you think about them, and all you can imagine in your mind is how they have hurt you and harmed you. All you see is the pain. All you see is that email, that insult, that, that betrayal. That's all you see. And what you, all you can really think about when you think of them is their downfall of you just kind of one-upping them or getting back at them. And you know that you should forgive them. You know what the word says about that that Jesus forgave you all these things? How could you not now forgive your brother or your sister who sinned against you? You know all of that. You just don't care. You just refuse to allow God to define how you think about these things. 
Maybe it's a sin that you just, you refuse to let go of. So you know in your mind, you know what the word says about this, you know all the verses on this, but in your mind, you are making that thing right. That's how dark our minds are at times. We can actually begin to think that evil is actually good. And so we'll use all of our creative energy, we'll use all our mental faculties, and we will rationalize and think that this sin is justified because we somehow deserve this. That's how dark our hearts and our minds are at times. And so Peter is saying to take action, to awaken your mind and and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So that's one way that Peter says to to do this. The second way is by being sober-minded. Look what he says in verse 13 again. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first way to set your hope fully on the grace is to get your mind ready. And closely tied to that is sober thinking, sober-mindedness. And so what Peter's saying here is don't be drunk in your thinking. Don't be imbalanced. Don't be, you know, tossed to and fro. So whenever you drink in the wrong ways, your body becomes drunk. Your mind is unclear. It's, it's, you know, it's foggy. It's hazy. You can't, you know, you can't walk straightly. You can't think coherently. You can't see. Your body is actually drunk and it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. The same happens when you think in the wrong ways. Your mind becomes drunk. Your thoughts become drunk. You don't see things as they are. You don't see reality as it actually is. It's unclear, therefore you're kind of tossed to and fro. You're hot and you're cold, you're you know, back and forth. This sounds great, this sounds great. You're just all over the place and you're not grounded in your sober-mindedness and in your thinking. And so you're kind of tossed back and forth between truth and falsehood, between wisdom and error. And Peter's saying, you need to wake up. You need to just... Open your eyes and wake up and stop dreaming and actually open yourself up to the right thinking and stop being, being drunk in your thoughts. I mean, think of it like this. Um, when you're sober-minded, you see things as they actually are. But if you're not sober in your thinking, you either think that things are worse than they actually are, and so that scares you, or you think that things should be better than they actually are, and that kind of deflates you. And so life is either a daydream or a nightmare for you. So when you daydream, you're not, you're not fully awake, okay? Your, your, your body's awake, but your mind is just somewhere else. You're thinking about some vacation, some endeavor, some trip, some you know, concert. You're thinking about something that's happening. Then you kind of wake up and you realize that's not happening right now. It's not as fun right now as it will be when the concert starts, and so you wake up and you realize that wasn't real life and it kind, of, it kind of deflates you, doesn't it? And so your mind is at Disney, your body's stuck on 35 in traffic and you're miserable. And you just kind of wake up from, I was daydreaming and I realize things aren't as good as they should be or as I want them to be and it kind of depresses us a little bit. On the other hand, a, a nightmare is the opposite. A nightmare, you see things as worse than they actually are. So my wife, about at least once a month, she wakes up angry at me because she had, some, she had some dream, some nightmare where I either cheated on her or wouldn't marry her or I was mean to her. And so she wakes up like literally angry at me. I'm like, chillax, girl, I didn't do anything. Like I was just sleeping. I'm the guy of your dream, not your nightmares, just chill out. And she's, then she wakes up and realizes, oh, it was a dream. It was a nightmare. 
that's not how things actually are. I actually have a husband who loves me and who doesn't cheat on me and I actually married her. So it's not how it actually was in the dream. And so she wakes up. And so life is either, for many of us, it's a daydream or it's a nightmare. And so for many of us, things are horrible and we're afraid. Or things could be better and you're depressed. Things aren't what you thought they should be. That endeavor, that thing that you desired so much just wasn't what you thought it was. And it just kind of robs your joy from you. So for example, you, you look at your bank account and it just scares you to death. I mean, you think I'm worthless. I don't have anything. I can't make this bill. I can't pay for this debt. I can't do this. I, I make nothing, therefore I am nothing. How will I ever make it in this life, you might think. Or you think, you know, I'm single. I will never have joy and I never have wholeness until marriage. Until I meet someone who will fulfill all my dreams and all my aspirations, I'll be miserable while I'm single. Some of you might think that. Some of you may think, well, I have, I have a, a wife and kids now. My life is over, okay? My, all my dreams, all my aspirations, all, you know, my golf career, it's just all over now. You, you see what's happening? You're seeing things as worse than they actually are. You're not sobered up. You're not awake in your thinking. On the other hand, let's say that you, you, know, you get promoted and the, the bank account goes up. And then you realize, though, that you're still anxious about money. And you're not satisfied like you thought this money would actually satisfy you. You thought, if I could just get a little bit more and have a little more on the account, a little more savings, pay this debt off, do this. But then those things begin to happen and you realize that you're still anxious over money. You're still afraid. You're still kind of, you know, scared about the future. And you're always wondering what's going to happen next. And so you're not, it didn't do what you thought. And it just kind of depresses you a bit. Or you've, you know, you've aced some test that you were just studied for and you just gave your life for a solid two weeks on this. You ace this and you realize you're still afraid. Like you're still worried about your career and your job and your debt and all these things. It didn't do what you thought. Some vacation you planned for months. And you, I mean, you saved all that you could. You scrapped together, lived on ramen for six months, just trying your best to save, you know, save for this. Then it comes and the flight's delayed. They lost your luggage, whether it's terrible. You fought with your friends half the time or your spouse half the time and you come back miserable. Now your photos were amazing. All right, we all saw that. Those filters were great, by the way. It looked awesome, but deep down, you just put way too much of your joy on this trip and then when it fell, you kind of fell with it. And your joy fell with it. That's not sober thinking. And what Peter's saying is we need, we need to sober up and be clear in our thinking. And the way that this kind of mental drunkenness happens is really the same way that physical drunkenness happens. Whenever you get drunk with alcohol, it's because you drank too much of it. You took too much of it in. The same is, is true with your thoughts. If you take... Too many, you, know, you, you think, think about something too much, your mind just becomes, becomes hazy and foggy and it distorts that thing. So if you, if you set your mind on someone's approval, like you just think about how can I get them to like me and like what I say and what I do, just get them to approve you. If you're always thinking about that, then you have to have their approval, otherwise you can't have joy. Then once you get their approval, what happens? You want this more and more and more. And so you think about this, you fill your mind with what they think, their opinions, their thoughts, and it runs your life. 
Or if you fill your mind with sexual fantasies, you'll think, I must indulge this to have joy. Unless I indulge this, I'll have no life, no wholeness, I'll have no fun, no excitement. Then you indulge those desires, and what happens? All this guilt comes crashing in, and all this shame, and all this remorse, and so it didn't do what you thought that it should do, and it just kind of deflates you a bit. And so I think most of us kind of go back and forth between these two. It's either a nightmare or it's a daydream, and we need to sober up. We need to stop thinking that bad is horrible and that good should be better. That's not how life works. And so sober thinking looks at hard and difficult things and says, yes, this is painful right now. There's no question this hurts right now, but God is working. God's going to work all things for good and shape this and kind of bend this and work everything for good. He promised that, he will do that, and sober thinking says, I trust him on that. Yes, it hurts, yes, it's painful, but God is working, God will renew this, God will restore this, things will get better, and so I can have hope and peace in the midst of this. Sober thinking looks at good things and says, this is a tremendous blessing. I am grateful for this, I wanna enjoy this, I wanna savor this, but only Jesus actually satisfies me. Only Jesus actually can give me life, not this promotion, not this endeavor, not this career path, not this whatever. It's only Jesus that actually satisfies me in the depths of who I am. That's sober-mindedness. And so where, where are you in this? Where are your, where are your think, where's your thinking just kind of hazy and foggy? Where are you panicking because you think that life is worse than it actually is? What's just depressing you because you've just put so much weight and put so much of your worth and your security on this thing and it's not happening and your life is just kind of crumbling and you're kind of going with it. You need to sober up and you're thinking, maybe, maybe it's not nightmare, daydream, maybe it's just how you view yourself. Like I'm learning that Uh, the way that um, people experience me and the way I think they experience me are often very different, okay? Um, I can come across as as cold and as distant sometime and kind of aloof at times, kind of harsh. I can kind of be a jerk. Some of you are like, we know. Okay, easy, okay, I'm working on it. Jesus is working on me. So, but I'm, I'm learning this, that how I need to sober up in my thinking of myself, and how, I, you know, how I'm wired, what I can do, what I can't do, how God has built me, my personality, how people, I need to sober up my thinking, and you do as well. You need to be sober in your view of yourself, in your gifts, in your talents, and what God wants of you right now, and all the things you're doing, you need to sober up in your thinking. Maybe some of you right now, being sober-minded for you is just being a servant to this church and those around you. Like right now, being sober for you is taking the action of being a servant and thinking, having the posture that there is nothing that's beneath me. I wanna give myself, I wanna serve, I wanna help, I wanna care, I wanna do whatever it takes to see this church advance and Jesus magnified. That's sober-mindedness for many of you right now. Some of you guys are 19, 20, 22 years old or so. You need to think about being a servant and being sober-minded of yourself in your thinking and actually doing some things may help that. That's why it's so imperative for us to be clear in our thinking of ourselves. Otherwise, we, we can't prepare our minds for action and we can't set our hope fully on the grace that's coming to us when Jesus returns. Now, what is that grace that's coming to us? Look what Peter says in 13, 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This will be brought to you, Peter says. Now, Peter's saying that the word, the word revelation means an appearance or a disclosure. And so what he's saying is that Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he's bringing grace to us. Like he's coming back for us, not with wrath, not with fury, but for those who know him, he's coming back with more and more grace for us. Now, Peter does not tell us what, what the king coming back in, what this grace actually is. Okay, but it's not hard to imagine how glorious this grace will be that he's bringing to us. I mean, just think about for a second all the grace that Jesus brought with his first coming. Think of all the blessing and all the power and glory and goodness and the teaching and the parables and the miracles and the life. All that Jesus brought to us in his first coming. I mean, Jesus did some things that no one in history has ever done. And Jesus just, I don't, I don't want to be trite about this, but Jesus just did some marvelously cool things. I mean, he is at a wedding, just hanging out with his family and his disciples, and the wine runs out, and Jesus turns the water into wine. Jesus actually walks on water to appear to his disciples. He could wait until the boat hits the shore and, and lands, but he actually wants to walk out on the water and show his glory because he can command the water to somehow support him. The water obeys Jesus. I mean, how cool is that? There's no one like him. There's no one who said the things that Jesus said about himself. And so most religious teachers would come along and say things like, okay, you want truth? Here's the path to truth. You want, you want life, you want salvation, then follow this teaching. Follow these principles, follow these rules and these laws, and there's the path out there. Go and, go and follow that. Jesus says, you want truth? I'm truth. You want to find the way? I'm the way. You want to find life? I'm life. It's a person. He doesn't point to some teaching or some idea or some system. Jesus points to himself. There is no one who ever in their right mind talked the way Jesus talked about himself. There's no one like him. He stands alone in this. And he brought all this grace to us in his first coming. Just imagine in his second coming that you will actually get to see him as he is in all of his glory. You know, Peter says earlier that you've not seen him, but you love him. Imagine when you get to actually see him, how much you will love him. How much more, when you, when you set eyes on the, on the king, on the son of God who loved you and died for you, how much love you will actually have in your heart. And I don't, there's no words for that. And so what Peter's saying is, is that this story gets better. That when Jesus appears, then death and sin and Satan and evil and violence and suffering and pain and sorrow and tears and loss and cancer and miscarriages and poverty and pay cuts and divorce and political upheaval and crime and war and famine and corruption will be no more. And all that you have lost in this life, all that you will lose in this life, all that you've had to say no to because you're following Jesus and you can't say yes to certain desires, all that you've missed out on, all that you thought, I wish I had that, but because of Jesus, I can't right now. All those things that you've suffered and endured, all that you've lost and that you will lose when he comes back again, 
that is all now filled up with glory and blessing and grace and reward. I read an article uh, weeks ago uh, by the authors. The, the title was called How the World Lost Its Story. Um, and the, the author makes the argument that in our culture, we've, we've lost this belief in happy endings. That any, you know, any story or book or movie or something that has a happy ending is seen by many in you know, kind of Western culture as inferior art. It's not thoughtful. It's not deep enough. Because happy endings don't happen. Life doesn't work like that. And happy, a happily ever after ending is just some fairy tale for kids. It's just seen as inferior art, and so it's just wishful thinking because life isn't like that. Life is you live and you work yourself to death and you make some money and you enjoy some money and then you die, and that's it. There's no happily ever after. There's no happy ending, and so many, um, the world's lost its story. What the author is saying is we don't believe in happy endings. It's just some fairy tale for many. You may think that. Some of you might think that this whole, this whole idea, this whole Christian idea of the world being restored and all things made right and all the wrongs made right and all the you know, justice reigning, that may just be an absolute farce for many of you. There's just no way that this world can actually be set right. And you think this is all just a myth and a fairy tale. You may think that. But, but here's what I know deep down. I think if you are honest with yourself, you would have to admit that you want this to be true. That doesn't make it true, okay, just to be clear. But you just, I think that we are just wired to want this to be true. There's something in us that we desire a happy ending. We want to see the world set right. We want to see justice done for all the oppression and violence and all the wrongs. We want to see peace and justice reign in this world. We long for that. You want your life to count, don't you? I mean, what are you doing? Don't you want everything that you've done in this life to actually matter? I mean, why are you in school? Why are you studying? Why are you working? Why are you giving so much time and effort? Don't you want that to matter? There's something in us that deep down that we just want this world to be set right and we want a happy ending. There's a place in, uh, you may have read J.R.R. Tolkien's great work, The Lord of the Rings. There's a place um, at the end where Samwise Gamgee, you know, he's Frodo's companion. They go through all of this peril, all of this just danger and they, they risk their lives to, you know, destroy the ring. Spoiler alert, if you hadn't read that. They go through all this, all this pain. Sorry, it's been four services. The filter's kind of off right now. So um, they go through all this pain, all this suffering, all this, this turmoil. And uh, Samwise Gamgee wakes up. And he's in bed. And, and Gandalf is standing, you know, the great wizard Gandalf is standing over him. And Sam can't believe what's happening. And he looks at Gandalf, who he hasn't seen in forever. And he says to him, is everything sad coming untrue? That's what he asked him. And Gandalf just burst into laughter. And the sound of it was like the sound of music to Sam's ears. And what Gandalf says to him is, a great shadow has departed. And Sam can't believe this. He bursts into tears. He leaps out of bed. All the pain, all the suffering, all that was sad has come untrue now. And I think we just, we just long for the shadow to depart. We just long for the weight 
and the curse of sin and evil and suffering and all this exile, we long for this to depart. We long for a happy ending. And what Peter's saying is there's a happy ending. Everything sad actually comes untrue. The king returns and there is healing in his hands. And there is blessing and he is bringing grace and love and glory and kindness with him when he comes. And this is our hope. So here's how John says this, and I'll, and I'll be done. First John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Just to see Jesus as he is, you immediately become like him. That's how glorious he is. You see him, you'll become like that. And he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so what he's saying is that whenever we see him, we will be as we should. We will see him as he is, and we will be as we should, and all things will be set right. They will be as they should. And we will spend our days gazing on him and treasuring him and loving him and being mesmerized by him, and every day will get better and brighter and deeper and more glorious. This is our hope. That's why Peter says, get your mind ready for this. Sober up, set your hope fully on the grace that our King will bring to us. You pray for us. Father, I, I think that there probably are many people who may hear this idea and just think that it's just a myth, that it's just a fairy tale, that it's just wishful thinking. The idea that, that Jesus, you would come and make everything right just seems so far sometimes, even for us who believe it, seems so far from us, just from our, our mundane, ordinary, busy lives and, and you actually coming back and bringing grace and restoring all things and blessing us and fully redeeming us and raising us up and making the world as it should be. It, it just seems so far. So would you give us... Would you give us grace to hope in the grace that you're bringing? Would you give us a resolve to trust this, that, that though we've not seen you, we love you, we're in love with you now, and Jesus, will be even more in love when we see you. And so would you help us right now just to set our minds right and to sober us up in our thinking that we might set our hope fully on you? Jesus, there is no one like you. And so we want to do everything in our, in our power, any, everything that by your grace that you would give to us to, to live for you, to honor you, to please you, to treasure you. Jesus, you are worth everything. Of all that we have given up, of all that we've risked, of all that we've said no to, Jesus, it'll be worth it whenever we see you. And so I pray that if we are right now, anyone's just kind of just harboring sin, harboring bitterness, believing lies that we would trust right now and believe that, that you are enough for us. Wake us up from nightmares, wake us up from daydreams, and Jesus, would you give us life? Would you sober us up that we might treasure and worship and trust in you? We love you. Thank you that you promised that you were coming again. May that be what our hope, what our joy is defined by as we seek to endure exile, as we seek to live and show a city and a world that there is hope. There is a king who's coming. And they long for him. May we show them how good he is. Pray these things in your glorious name. Amen.